Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Spark. We tell true stories. We tell them live. And we tell them across the UK. Tonight we'll hear tales about migration. As part of our collaboration with the Migration Collective. Here's our first storyteller, Daniel. Hi everyone. Um, I'm going to talk to you about, about assumptions. And if this all goes according to a plan, hopefully also talk about absolute joy. Um, I've worked with refugees for about 15 years, um, only here in England, and it's my profession, and I like to think that I don't make assumptions, that I meet everyone and, you know, just go with it and see what happens, and uh, that's nonsense. Um, For the first time in November, I actually went and worked with refugees in another country. I went to a place called Inofita, which is near Athens. It's uh, a refugee camp, and um, it was... uh, Mostly people from Afghanistan that were there. And about a month before we went over, there was a group of about 12 of us. We'd gone to, to actually decorate the camp. It's in an old industrial unit, so we just took loads of paint and brushes and we're going to uh, just make the place more beautiful. And um, about a month before we went, uh, some conference in Brussels decided that Afghanistan is a safe country, um, if you can believe that. Um, so all these people in the camp uh, couldn't go back to Afghanistan because... The Taliban is resurgent, and they can't come here, which is where most people wanted to come to, uh, because they're stopped at all the borders. And so my big assumption when I got there was that I would probably be speaking to men, um, because of my stereotypes and, and my limited knowledge about the culture, about Islam, about Afghanistan. And I thought that's probably going to happen, I'm going to talk to the men. And actually when I got there, I pretty much talked to no one, <laughs> because I don't speak any Farsi. And hardly anyone spoke any English. Uh, so I thought, well, what am I going to do? I'm the son of a painter decorator. Maybe I'll just start painting. Um, so I started painting. And um, after a couple of hours, school broke out. And all the kids ran into the room where I was painting. It was the kitchen. And just started wanting to grab paintbrushes and paint. And uh, I had this thing in my head over and over again. I still dream of it. Me, color, me, color. Uh, which we, we just kind of heard for days. And I was in this thing of like, on one hand, I want to really involve these children and really encourage them. And on the other hand, I don't want this place to just be splattered with paint. I don't want children to be fighting and covered with paint and all this kind of stuff. And it was interesting. After a couple of hours of this, I noticed 
this girl of about 10, her name was Asma, I found out later on, and she was just painting beautifully, much better than me, beautiful, clean lines. Everything was perfect. She was washing the brushes. She was cleaning some more. And we started talking as I was trying to, like, fend off these, these kids but also do the right thing. And after about two hours of kind of talking a little bit, she said to me in perfect English, she said, Daniel, stop for a moment. I just need to teach you something. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm thinking, wow, this is incredible. Taliban, young woman, talking to me, perfect English. Turned out she'd only been in the camp for three months, and her English was absolutely spot on. And she said, uh, repeat after me. And I apologize to anyone in here who speaks Farsi, because I'll probably sound terrible. But she said, repeat after me, badazul. And I made a hash of it. No, badazul, badazul. And she said, okay, say that. And I'm like, well, what are you telling me? And she said, just say it when the next person comes along. And I go, badazul. And the kids like nod and they go away, like with a big smile on their face. And all she taught me was after lunch. <laughs> and essentially, Asma had bought me time to figure out a plan because I was kind of freaking out a little bit. Uh, me with 15 years experience working with refugees. Uh, <laughs> slightly less with paint. Um, so anyway, flash forward a couple of days, and it was really interesting. The men were really slow to get involved in this painting exercise. Ultimately, what happened is a lot of artists were in the camp and engineers, and the beautiful things started to appear on the walls. We were just going to make it nice, but they murals, everything, it's beautiful. And if you get the chance, there's going to be an exhibition from Saturday at St. Ethelburgers in, in Liverpool Street, if you know that place. So check it out on the website. And... Um, so I noticed that it was women and girls that were coming out and wanting to get involved much more than men. It took the men three days, women and girls, like, really quickly. A couple of days after this, um, I get invited to play football with the teenage girls and some of the, the female volunteers that, that I was working with. And it was really interesting. Outside the camp, there was this kind of gritty gravel surface with a handball court, and it was always the men that were out there. It was like the evening activity. Women nowhere to be seen when this was going on. So we took about, th or they took about three or four goes to try and get this football match started. And uh, what would tend to happen was that young men would come out and want to get involved, a lot of them wearing football shirts, um, mostly Barcelona, and uh, doing the kind of fancy footwork, which I have no idea about, but you know the whole trick thing. And, and it, just, it just didn't work because they were kind of off on their own mission and not really playing with anyone else. And I'll never forget this um, teenage girl who just picked up the ball and just walked off so deliberately, like, if you're not going to play with us, then it ain't going to happen. And finally we had this game, and it was just absolutely joyful. It was terrible. All of us were terrible as footballers. Um, I got knocked down. <laughs> by I think a 14 year old in this kind of <laughs> great ego crushing moment um, and, uh, and I just couldn't believe it when I thought about everything that I know about the world and everything that I thought I knew about Afghanistan uh, that my mind was just completely blown by this experience so I think it was two days before we left we were there for a week and by this point the camp is just this absolute riot of colour and kind of different different uh, forms of expression, a lot about home, a lot about journeys, a lot about hope. And um, on the penultimate day, there were 12 of us in our group, and we got invited by one of the families of the teenage girls that I play football with uh, to come and have lunch with them. 
And earlier that day, I'd actually been in the warehouse. I took a day off from painting, and I was handing out to, to the different families, who incidentally, sometimes six people in a room, two meters by two meters, um, handing out uh, food to them. And you know, really just like measuring like a small bit of rice, you know, a family of, of six, you know, 12 tea bags for a week, that kind of thing. So we were invited for lunch, and all of us sat down outside this tent, and just so much food, so much food. And um, the father of the family said uh, to us in that moment, he said, we don't have much food in this tent, um, but we have a lot of love. And uh, we all kind of lost it at that point <laughs> a little bit. And so, it just for me, just a feeling of absolute joy and just thinking about who I am and the decisions I make daily in this mad city of ours. And something uh, that came up when Omar was speaking earlier on and, and he was saying about just go out and be friendly to people, speak to people on the way home. I don't want to sound didactic, but there's a big part of me that wants to say, get out your biggest cooking pot and actually just start making some food and get to know people and get involved, uh, get to know people who have come from another country who aren't settled and aren't comfortable yet and just have dinner together. That's it. Thanks. I'm going to bring on the next storyteller. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome for the wonderful Bankay, ladies and gentlemen, all the way from the front row. Here she is. So I think I learned pretty early in life that um, there were generally three categories of migrants. And these aren't scientific categories, so feel free to completely ignore this. But there's expats, there's immigrants, and there's refugees. And refugees tend to be from very war-torn, horrible situation that they had to escape from. Um, the other two definitions are very scientific, so I need everybody to pay close attention. If you're an expat, it generally means you're perceived as white. And if you're an immigrant, you're perceived as not white. When I was four years old, my family moved from Nigeria to the Netherlands. And um, to us, we weren't migrants at all. My dad was moving there for four years for work. That was the only reason we were there. And in four years, we were going to move back. But we moved to a very small town called Asin, and they'd never seen black people before. They'd never met any Africans. And uh, when we first moved there, the neighbors were terrified. Over the years, they warmed to us, and we developed very close friendships. And some of them even came to visit Nigeria um, when we moved back. A few years later, when I was 16, um, I moved to the United States and went to college, worked for a few years, and went to law school. So when I moved to Holland, my sisters and I couldn't even speak English, and we learned English very quickly at a British school and um, had some kind of weird expat British accent. <laughs> we moved back to Nigeria, and I had the same accent. Moved to America and tried to integrate as quickly as possible with an American accent. The thing I learned in England, um, well, for most of my life, an accent was an aspirational thing. It was something that you chose to do, and you went forward, and you learned it, and you spoke in whatever accent you wanted. Since moving to England, apparently an accent is something that you're born with, and you have to stick with for the rest of your life. Um, 
And so I, when I moved to England, um, so I went to college, law school, and then I moved to um, London to be a lawyer. And as soon as I moved here, I discovered that the categories of immigrants or migrants had nothing to do with the color of your skin, but it was more about what accent you had. And because I'm a very smart woman, <laughs> I decided that I was going to be American. <laughs> and British people tend to treat Americans with a great deal of respect and curiosity. So that worked out very well for me. <laughs> um, the funny thing about it is I've now been in England for six years and I have a British passport now, but it wasn't something I ever intended to do. I've never moved anywhere with the intention of staying there forever. So even moving here was because I wanted to move back to Nigeria eventually, but I wanted to work somewhere where I could get um, international work experience that I could take back with me. And even though I've stayed here longer, in the city of London longer than I've ever stayed in any city of my life, it hasn't been easy. Like London is the first place in my entire life, despite how people acted when I first moved to the Netherlands and how people acted when I was like an oddball at a university in America. London is the first place that I've heard myself referred to as the N-word twice. The funny thing about London is London is probably the place that I've paid the most taxes and been the most active in terms of citizenry but I've also just had some of the most amazing experiences here. And I've decided that my favorite kind of people are the people when you ask them, where are you from? And they pause and they don't know how to explain where they're from. And that's definitely me. Because when you hear, when someone asks me, where are you from? Especially after we've already been in conversation, I want to know why. I'm like, are you asking me because of my name? Or are you asking me because of my accent? Or are you asking me where my passport is from? Because it's all very different stories. <laughs> and um, for the most part, I've felt that London was home because it had the greatest collection of people who were from everywhere. And you can go out every night in London and meet someone from a different country. But I think in recent times with Brexit and with the theme or the feeling from other parts of Europe, it's the first time in my life where I felt like London is part of a bigger country that may not be as welcoming as London itself is. And perhaps London is only welcoming because it does have the biggest collection of people from everywhere or people who don't even have like a very direct story about where it is that they're from. I think when I got my British passport, I decided I was gonna go back to my Nigerian accent and just not talk in an American accent anymore. But after Brexit, I thought maybe I'll hold on to it for a little <laughs> bit longer. Um, and it's, ki it, it's kind of home now. Nigeria will always be home as well. Um, I don't know what the moral of the story should be. <laughs> I don't think I ever got to that part in thinking about this. But there are different kinds of migrants. And no one type of migrant is better or worse than the other. And there's nothing you can tell about a person from looking at the person um, or even knowing what their job is and knowing how much they're contributing to your society. But I mean, the world, London, England, America, Nigeria doesn't belong to you because you won the ovarian lottery and landed in a place that didn't have as many issues as another place. It's just the world and we're all 
have every right to every place that you could possibly find yourself as each other. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Spark True Stories. If you love what we do, please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes. For more true stories and to see a live event, head to stories.co.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.